I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I am not here today with Mr. Sean Latimer as he's in Las Vegas enjoying March Madness, but I am here with Mr. Joe Klein. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for having me. Uh, You did a bracket. I did not. Oh, you bowed out. Sean is going to... Not, Sean's going to give me a hard time when he hears that. Yeah, so no March Madness opinion. Well, um, as much as March Madness is captivating the sports world, in the world of finance, we're captivated by Silicon Valley Bank. Fun, fun, fun. Yeah, one of the things I said in the article, it felt like it was impossible to not talk about this topic. But I'm going to be honest on this podcast. I really enjoy David's commentary when it comes to the analysis of something macro and kind of the impacts and and all the nuance that you would expect from a CIO. I am not trying to fill that role, right? I am a teammate to David Bonson, and I really enjoy, as you lead our financial planning department, I really enjoy being a financial planner. So I had to take this topic and say, hey, from a planner's perspective, can you glean lessons from what happened to a bank, which seems like it wouldn't relate to an individual investor, but I think it does. And I think you can glean some truths from it. You, when you asked me to do this podcast about Silicon Valley Bank, in my head, I sighed because I thought, David's covered this so much better than anything I could ever say about it. And then you told me the context. And then I thought, Trevor comes up with one idea after another. Let's do this. This is going to be fun. Yeah, so I just started kind of meditating on this idea of reading David's paper that he wrote on Monday. I encourage everybody to go to it. There's a link. And basically looking at, hey, what are these financial truisms or wisdom we could glean from this situation? Um, and I'm actually going to turn it over to you because I think you had some additional special extra stuff for our podcast listeners that really isn't in the article. So maybe you could start with your top one or two things that really stood out to you. The premise of taking this situation and then applying it to our personal lives, I was not thinking about that again until you brought up this topic. And then I started brainstorming, how does this relate? What can we learn? And I did a little bit more reading. I reread David's article from Monday about it. And the first thing I thought of was, have a plan. I, as, as basic as it, as it sounds, uh, Silicon Valley Bank needed help. They went to Goldman Sachs uh, per Wall Street, Journal art, Wall Street Journal article about 10 days before they actually had the whole bank meltdown and went out of business. It was too late. It was a situation of failure to plan is planning to fail. Which is a good highlight because you're kind of taking – I actually had a similar truth. But you're saying, hey, have a plan. And I've even heard I, – I haven't read up on this. You can confirm it or if you know. I don't even think that they had the appropriate people in the risk management roles – Uh, that would be uh, expected at some of the other banks. But what I put as a very similar truth to what you're saying, I said, hey, investor, if you're rushing to borrow, it's too late. Uh, And what we're saying there is you were saying they met with Goldman Sachs to see if, hey, they could feel the pain coming and could they do like a last-ditch effort to resolve this. And I've seen it. I highlighted in the article the COVID moment. Yes, I know with the PPP loans and things like that, the government did step in. But there was a time period from, I would say, around March till summertime where business owners didn't know what to do. And I know a lot of business owners, they were willing to do anything to save their business. So a ton of them came to me and said, hey, I have a a lot of equity in my home. 
can I go out and get a home equity line of credit and just kind of shore up this gap for my business? The problem was a ton of banks either said, we're not doing any home equity lines of credit right now, or we're only going to serve current customers, or we're only going to do applications that were submitted pre-March. So it was that same concept of if you're rushing to borrow, typically it's too late. Absolutely. Silicon Valley Bank went out of business and it wasn't a default. We're not talking about what happened in the global financial crisis of 08. This is totally different. It was the old run on the bank and they just didn't have enough capital to pay back depositors in a timely fashion. And I think for for a client, have your sources of liquidity ready, uh, particularly for the business owner or someone who is very real estate rich or just has e-liquid assets understand where your sources of liquidity are before you need them. Yeah, and I'll speak to me personally. I just am on the final inning, final seconds of the game on a very large remodel project at my house. A lot of lessons learned there. Because most of my life saving, it's always been save for the long term, save for the long term. And now I had this quite sizable project. And I will say, just to calm all the listeners, it worked out. Right. But some of my exits of long term investments, it was a little bit of luck uh, because I was looking down the line of like, oh, this is going to cost a little bit more and just adding to reserves, adding to reserves to make sure that I had a sufficient amount. But that could have gone the opposite way. And I could imagine with having illiquid assets on my balance sheet, how difficult that would have been. Not to mention, what if I was planning this remodel project, which we were talking about originally, I think in like August of, I don't even remember when it was, but at that time, I probably could have gotten decent lending options. But two or three months down the line, those lending options doubled and tripled. So what you're saying there is you have to look kind of down your future, what could happen, even worst case scenarios, and what are my safety nets? One of the, to build on that, one of the concepts I had for this conversation was investing for your time horizon, which didn't really work out well for Silicon Valley Bank, how they had too many short-term liabilities and long-term assets. For you, Trevor, and your home remodel, which is a perfect example for what I was thinking of, and I can't wait to see this house, by the way, uh, is how you invested money for this home remodel, because it was short-term in nature that you needed it. So you said add to reserves. I don't think you said add to your stocks. No, it's exactly that. And honestly, there's that old saying that the shoemaker's kids have no shoes. This was bad planning on my part. In hindsight, it worked out really good that my exits to add to those reserves uh, were at prudent times and how the stock market was behaving. But you're exactly right. I set aside an account where I was like, okay, this should be enough money. The problem is advice for everybody. If you're doing a remodel, just add 25% to whatever you think is going to cost and then add five months to whatever date you think it's going to be finished. And that is maybe something you only get from experience. But I was essentially dollar cost averaging out of investments as I saw kind of those expenses coming down the, uh, the pike. But there were times where I was planning on using lines of credit and different things like that. And at the time of my planning, we've spent the last 10 years at 0% interest. I didn't imagine where home equity lines of credit and mortgages would be today. So again, it worked out in my favor. But one of the sections I put in the article 
was um, this idea of the importance of building safety nets. And what I told uh, you know our readers was, if you look at your financial plan, look at it as if you were an architect making blueprints. There should be multiple fire exits because you never know where the fire is going to show up. So safety nets can come in all different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's reserves, just cash, like you said. Sometimes it's opening a home equity line of credit that you don't plan to take a dollar from, that it's just in the backseat prepared in case an emergency came up. Sometimes it's a portfolio line of credit. Sometimes it's insurance, right? Whether it's disability insurance or life insurance, it's that there's these tail events if we're looking at, at like probabilities of outcomes. And if this third standard deviation event happens, like a run on the bank, um, what could you do? How prepared are you? And it's almost like there should be a verbal stress test of your portfolio where you sit down with your advisor and you say, hey, what what are some possible like real life curveballs that could throw me off? And am I prepared for them? The insurance point was one I wanted to bring up as well. And this is way beyond the FDIC kind of insurance that that is this is way beyond the FDIC kind of insurance that the Silicon Valley depositors were facing. But when we're reflecting on in your reflecting on this in your financial life, for for clients, what are your tail risks and, and reasonable ones? Because we can all come up with you know, outsized, very low probability things, but reasonable ones. If you're a high earner, working, disability insurance. If you're retiring, think about long-term care insurance. Your ultra high net worth. Do you have enough umbrella insurance? But taking out some of those tail risks that can bring that could bring you down, as opposed to you know maybe you're not running out of money, but what can really drive a, an outside event that throws a complete wrench in your portfolio? One of the advantages of being a financial advisor or financial planner is I would I would guess that most people would say, you know, think about just interviewing a, an extremely wealthy 85-year-old. They would probably tell you mistakes along the way and how they gained investor maturity through experience, right? One life lived offered them a lot of wisdom. The great thing about being a financial advisor, you get to live 100 financial lives, right? You get to talk to 100 different people. It's more than that. But I'm saying if you're serving 100 clients or something, and you know there's a little bit of a revolving door, but you essentially get to live these 100 financial lives. So my house is never burnt down, but I know clients that their house is burnt down. I have never built a house from the ground up, but I've helped a client go through the whole process of this. So uh, essentially, I get to um, borrow life experience and wisdom you can derive from that life experience from other people's financial lives. I have a question for you, Trevor. Is there, is there are there any other lessons that you think someone should take away reflecting from Silicon Valley Bank and then their own personal lives that you've seen from client experience or have heard from clients over the last week that maybe someone listening should think about or, or want to know? Yeah, one thing that comes to mind for me, and it was kind of my, my third point here, is David Bonson put a really good chart from Bloomberg in his Monday piece on Silicon Valley Bank. And it basically just showed this hockey stick growth of deposits. And what it stood out to me is how difficult it is when 
you get rich quickly. And it's it's not only anecdotal, it's true, right? There's there's a ton of research out there, whether it's about lotto winners or professional athletes going broke. And it starts to make you realize, huh, building a nest egg $1 at a time has its advantages. And one thing I highlighted in there, Jeff Bezos, and maybe this isn't true, but I Jeff Bezos says it's true, so we'll take his word for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it said a, a, a handful of different articles I've read talk about this conversation between Jeff Bezos, at the time the richest man in the world, talking to Warren Buffett, the second richest man in the world. And Bezos says to him something to the nature of, hey, your investment thesis seems so simple. Why don't more people adopt it? And Buffett's response, which all his responses, right, it's like these perfect little truisms. He says, nobody wants to get rich slowly. And that's the tension point uh, where you see this big hockey stick of growth and deposits. And in reality, we talk about long-term wealth accumulation, but everybody wants to get rich quick. And nobody wants to do it $1 at a time. The problem is with things like lifestyle creep, expensive friends, and all these other things, toys and glamour that get thrown your way when your balance sheet starts to bloat, Uh, it can be very difficult to resist those things. And for some people, it can be easy come, easy go. You said this to me, I don't know, a while ago, maybe like a year ago, we were talking about a client situation. And you said the client is living off their income statement, not their balance sheet. And that really resonated with me. A bit of a different uh, spin on what you just said, but making sure that you're living off your balance sheet if you're getting big raises at work and all of a sudden you go from making X to making three X. What did you keep? What do you have? And are you well situated to deal with what if three X goes to one and a half X or you have a new family member come in or other things come up in life? I I think do not become complacent or or sleep on success. Uh, I saw this quote without new ideas, success can become stale. Uh, That really resonated with me. And I think for a firm like Silicon Valley bank, it happened really quick. But as we've learned over the last two, three years, particularly with certain companies in the market that have done phenomenally well and then have done phenom- like very poorly, as quick as it goes up, it can also go down just as fast, if not faster. Yeah, and I think I don't want to call out one demographic, but I would say um, for 40-somethings, that's really important truth to think about because in your 40s, uh, for a lot of people, those are going to be the peak earning years. And for a lot of people in their 40s, I mean, I'm, I'm 38 and I still feel like I'm in my 20s, right? So I'm sure <laughs> people in their 40s are still thinking like, hey, I'm like young, ambitious, got a lot of life in front of me, which is true. I, I, there, there's truth to that. But when you start to understand this idea of compounding and you go back to your you know economics class that you had to take as a senior in high school and you realize how, how big of a benefit it was to start at saving at 20 versus 30 versus 40, This idea of building a strong nest egg, a snowball that can compound and roll down the hill is so advantageous, yet when you're in those peak earning years and you have young kids and you want to keep up with the Joneses, you find yourselves wanting to get new vehicles, new houses, and different things like that. And because income's so strong, this is the worst question you can ask yourself. And Sean and I talk about on the podcast a lot. The answer to can you afford it is yes, but should you afford it, if that's even a question, not always. And that's why I think 
for my advice for the 40 somethings is that you probably should pick a number, a dollar amount of how much you're going to save each year. And that dollar amount needs to match what your financial plan needs. And then you can spend the surplus. I, I think it came from the book. Um, I used to read a lot of finance books when I first got it. I, I think it was The Richest Man in Babylon, where it kind of talks about this concept of pay yourself first. So that is a truth uh, that people should be thoughtful of as they grow their income to say that, hey, I'm going to save X this year. Place that in the account, lockbox it, don't touch it, spend the leftovers. That's my tactic with the 30s and 40-year-old clients, especially those that have family and there's so many moving parts as I'm learning as a fairly new parent. There's so many moving parts. So how can we simplify this? How can we anchor on one concept to really narrow what you need to do to accomplish the longer term goals that are, are quite a few years away for those people. And that's where your advisor can really help. They can provide you with that unbiased professional opinion about what direction your financial life is heading. And the client can then determine if they like where the arrow is pointing. And if they do, great, execute the plan. If you don't, then you can change it rebuild it, and then work on executing that over time. They have time, which is the, you know, very valuable. Yeah, and it's almost in the past, whether it was your 20s or whatnot, you were limited on how much you could spend by how much you made, right? I remember even decisions of like talking to friends like, hey, do you want to go there? I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to save my gas to go here on Saturday. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you start to realize, man, I was frugal as part of necessity. And then as I grew my ability to create income and make income, that frugality kind of slipped away. But I I don't want to shortchange future self because future self is going to be like, man, Trevor of 2023, throw me some love, like set aside some money. um, Because, you know, ultimately, we want this idea of financial freedom that our balance sheet would be robust enough to create enough income to support the lifestyle we want to live. And that is what saving is all about. And we, we sometimes forget how that can almost, it's not the right term, but how it can almost even amplify your returns, right? You know, if, if somebody has a million dollars and they commit to saving $50,000 this year, it, it's almost like they've given themselves the first 5% return by just saving that 50000 Yeah. And you talked about compounding earlier and the, the returns that that will provide down the road. The challenge is balancing that with we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, so we have to also live for what we have right in front of us. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a hard part. We, we talk so many things about people accumulating wealth. Um, then folks, when they do get to that point of financial freedom, part of our job as a financial planner is to say, hey, now you need to enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? That you, you built up all these good habits of being a saver. Now we know there's truth that not only bad habits are hard to break, good habits are hard to break. So now you have to find some freedom and some encouragement to say, how do you go out from a legacy standpoint and enjoy the fruits of your labor? Another question for you, Trevor, is there anything about diversification? I think about Silicon Valley Bank, they had a very concentrated customer base or those customers faced a lot of the similar kind of problems or feedback that they they heard. Is there anything we could impart to clients about diversification in their financial lives that would be helpful for them to hear? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I I tried to mention this in the conclusion, but on my notes on my phone, I had like 
seven takeaways. But I really try to stick these articles to be like less than 1,500 words. I would love it if there are 1,000 words. I just, I just want to give you um, an appetizer uh, of something that you can meditate and think on. But I had one of those notes about diversification. Why? Because Silicon Valley Bank was in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley is where tech companies are. So their deposits grew relative to tech and venture companies. And there's this old adage in, in finance that says concentration is a great way or can be a good way to build wealth. It absolutely is not a great way to retain wealth. So they experienced this, this growth. And we've seen clients like that. Clients that have come in with single stock positions because they work for the company or love the company. And we start to say now, whoa. That's 90% of your balance sheet. And they'll tell us things like, yeah, but I know all the ins and outs of the company and I love the company, which I respect their opinion. But then you start to say, is it worth taking the risk? Because you, you really never know what's going to happen, right? We can, we can think about people's opinions of Kodak uh, back in the day, um, and we can transpose that to people's opinions about current companies. So we really don't know what the future has in store. And I love, I think it was... Harry Markowitz, the uh, modern portfolio theory, I think he's out of the University of Chicago. I think he's still with us in his 90s or or something like that. Um, But he said, there's only one free lunch in finance, diversification. So we have to encourage clients to do like that number one rule that basically says, don't take any undue risk or risk that you don't need to take. Sean Latimer likes to say it this way sometimes, you've already run, won the race. You know what I mean? Like like walk away from the table and, and take your winnings. Absolutely. And it's also not just the portfolio, but it's sources of income. The more you can spread that around, particularly for those maybe younger in their careers where it's not so simple as a dividend portfolio, which the beauty of a dividend portfolio is that it's very simple. Uh, but for those who are still accumulating wealth, can you have more than one single source of income uh, to rely on? And if you do have very concentrated income positions, how can you ensure that or protect that as best as possible? Yeah, and one thing that doesn't get a lot of airtime in the Silicon Valley Bank conversation, it goes back to this idea of diversification that you're talking about, is you would think that a big glut of depositors would be a huge benefit for a bank. But it's also a burden because essentially they have to take all those deposits on their balance sheet and do something with them. And uh, there's a diversification story there as well because without getting into the weeds, Silicon Valley Bank had a higher duration portfolio. Like it notes that in uh, you know $20 billion of assets, they were taking a nearly $2 billion loss for selling treasuries and government-backed mortgages, residential mortgages. So it wasn't like they were going out on the credit risk uh, of, of these things potentially defaulting. It's the perfect storm. What ends up happening is interest rates go through the roof unexpectedly in 2022, which even the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index was down somewhere in the zip code of the range of 13%. So even just kind of owning the bond market, uh, you got shellacked last year. So if you're not hedging interest rate risk, and you're not looking at your duration exposure, uh, that is very unfortunate. Now, the last part I want to talk about is what, what you pointed to, it wasn't a default. It was a run on the bank. And uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. 
and it's this, you know, I'm sure most of you have seen the movie, but uh, George Bailey running his father's business, and there's a run on the bank. He's running it, and he leans on the relationships he has. Have you seen the movie? Okay, you have to no. see the movie. He's shaking his head and saying no. Uh, my wife and I, we watch it every year. It's a wonderful movie. It's it's amazing. I know what I, I'm doing next weekend then. Yeah, like it's like tingling in the back of my neck because it's such a good movie. Uh, but everybody comes in and, and they make – he's running the bank. And they make a run on the bank. Uh, and he is basically walking them through the relationships he has with them and like, hey, come on, Mary. You don't want to get your money out. Like, 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 Remember Tom? You helped with your kids and all this. And he's like divvying out money to make it work and just watching the clock and the – they closed the doors and they made it through the day and he, he puts $1 in like the, his, in the back. And um, that is an amazing story that uh, gives us um, a feeling of hope and nostalgia and all these different things. That's not the world we live in. It's the information age. Like you want to take your money out of the bank? You go push a button on a computer. You go ask somebody to do a wire transfer. So uh, a run on the bank isn't a run to ATM machines. It isn't a run to a teller. It's a run to your keyboard. And what that means is we live in a different world. In the information age, everything moves a lot quicker. And even in, I don't even, actually, I probably should remember this because I've seen the movie so much, but It's a Wonderful Life. I believe it's Mr. Potter that kind of puts out some bad news that really charges the run on the bank, which is relative here because I, I quoted uh, Sarah Eisen tweeted something really attacking, it's not attacking, but blaming Peter Thiel and uh, Bill Ackman for what they said and really causing a lot of their folks they influence, right, their portfolio companies to go out and take their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. That's what hurt Silicon Valley Bank is that third, fourth standard deviation event, everybody decided to take their money out at the same time. And these weren't $100 deposits uh, that grandma set aside for a grandchild. No, these were meaningful amounts of money uh, for venture companies and, and things of that nature. So what does that mean to you? Well, one, be careful when you're taking your advice from billionaires because their situation is very different than yours. Um, and additionally, you need to be careful because you're not personally maybe making a run on the bank, but you can make a run on your portfolio. You can push a button real quick and buy-sell decisions can happen like that. And you got to decide, is that a feature or a bug? Because for most people, that causes more harm than help. When I think about what you just said, Trevor, I think about coming back to your advisor and they know the ins and outs of your financial life, personal life, and how those two interrelate and you form a team and you can make the best decision possible. So you have not a run on your own portfolio. Yeah. I've met with a group of guys. I'm trying to think how long now, like nearly 20 years I've met with these guys. We're in a Bible study together, but so much of what we come together and talk about is, Hey, look at my life. Is there any blind spots? Is there anything that you'd give me advice? Is there anything that other people aren't telling me? And it does become hard because our relationships are so tight-knit that sometimes we have to go to somebody and say, hey, I'm your friend, and nobody else is willing to tell you this, but X, Y, Z, right? And that's what an advisor should be doing. An advisor should be an accountability partner that you're running your financial decisions through because they are... Um, they don't have the same, they have a care for you. Their emotions are related to what's in your best interest. Your emotions are related to very different things, anxieties and things of that nature. And, you know, I have a good friend and we'll say this in a joking way. I love him and uh, we laugh about this. But I remember when this was all happening, he was like, 
this was like the first day and you know it was impacting all the regional banks right Mm -hmm. he came to me and said hey it probably makes sense for me to take all my money out of this regional bank and i was like uh like it wasn't silicon valley bank it was you know one of the peripheral ones that was catching news and things like that. And I was like, here's why I don't think so. Ultimately, it's your preference. You can do what you want. But I have money there too. I'm leaving it. Um, and we talked through it. But I, I don't think if you change from there to somebody else, I don't think that makes a big difference. But it was the very next day that he reached out to me and he said, hey, I'm thinking about buying the stock of that same bank. And I'm like, whoa, like you're making, this is a tailspin for me. Yesterday, you want to take your money out because they're going under. And today you're asking me about buying the stock. But that's how emotions work, right? They they go to different extremes uh, as we are, um, what would be the word I'm looking for? It's something like uh, it invokes a feeling in us, right? Mm-hmm. So all the news invokes this feeling that we have to get our money out. And then there were some days because of volatility, some of these regional banks were going up 50% in a single day. And that invokes another feeling of FOMO, right? So it's just wild as an advisor to have a front row seat for this stuff. And I don't say that in a demeaning way. We're human beings. That's how we're wired. Like, that's why going at a financial plan and a financial portfolio with two people is probably better than trying to go at it as one person alone. Four-eyed principle. Yes. What does that mean? I've never heard that. The four-eyed principle, four eyes are better than two? Correct. Fair enough. And it doesn't mean that somebody has glasses. No, I, I do not mean it that way. Or context. Well, um, I think we've covered the topic pretty good. One of the things I concluded with was this idea that you can read more about this situation and you can glean a ton of other truths and you can meditate on it. And I don't think you should stare at this like a car accident. I think that there should be some sort of understanding that this impacts people in a real way, right? That was the most frustrating thing for me is that there is a part of this that's hysteria. And because of hysteria... And because of living the information age, some banks that really shouldn't be impacted are having to probably lay people off and, and things like that. So, um, I, again, I think you approach this twofold. You don't stare at it like a car accident, but you definitely try to glean the truth that you can pick up along the way. Um, and wherever faith background you are, whether it's being prayerful or hopeful or encouraging, um, there is going to be a, a set of folks that are highly impacted by this. My hope is that whether it's an institution or individual, that this will drive resilience and strength. Um, But that story is still playing out. Any other uh, final thoughts you have? I think from every mistake, there's a lesson to be learned. Have a plan. And on a more tactical level, know your time horizons and have liquidity. Yeah, those are are huge. And uh, those definitely have surface to people the last couple of days. I can't imagine what the web traffic looks like for the FDIC website. Uh, I would assume in the last week that they had more web traffic. I mean, this is an absolute guess, but I would assume they had more web traffic in the last week than they probably had in the last five years. Uh, and such is the world we live in, in living in the information age. So with that said, we'll ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars are preferred. All comments are welcome on the podcast. An easy way to get a hold of Joe or me, Trevor, would be to email tom at thebonsagroup.com, T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. And of course, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts Thoughts on on Money. Money. 
Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.